all God's people said, amen. That was on my Spotify, I just hit repeat. Thank you, worship team. We're in the book of Luke, and today we're going to be in chapter 19, beginning with verse 28 to the end of the chapter, and it's always helpful to follow along, but if you don't have a Bible, there's a blue Bible in front of you, page 8. 78. We're entering, entering into the last week of Jesus, Jesus' life here before his resurrection, and so all the gospel writers slow down and take a look at this uh, last week with a greater clarity. <clears throat> My guess is many of you are going to watch the Super Bowl today, half watching the game, half watching the commercials and halftime show. Uh, commercials this year, how much? Seven million for 30 seconds. So I won't be having a commercial, but <clears throat> there is a commercial airing about Jesus. You know this? Uh, he gets us is the tagline, and it's part of a larger campaign designed to increase relevance about Jesus. And I've seen some of the commercials. They seem to be well done. And the commercials are tapping into Jesus' humanity to help you understand that he gets us. He's lived the life that many of us have lived. But before I read the text this morning, I want to ask this question. Do we get him? There's no question that he gets us. The biggest question is, do we get him? It'll become apparent as we go through this chapter and the rest of the uh, book of Luke. The answer is no for the people that are in these chapters, including his disciples. They, they don't get Jesus. They have a projection of Jesus. They have a script that they think Jesus is going to follow. Uh, but no one really gets the real Jesus. So I want to ask the question again, and it's really for today and through Easter, do you, do, do I, do you get Jesus? No, don't answer too quickly. So often we have an image of Jesus that's mostly in our image, but a slightly better version. Frequently we have a script that Jesus should follow. Certainly Jesus would vote like I vote. Hmm. But as we slowly move through the Gospel of Luke, we'll see here that so many people don't get Jesus, even his closest followers. So let's stand as we read this passage called the Triumphal Entry, Luke 19, beginning with verse 28. And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. He sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you where you are entering. You will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat 
Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying and singing, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. For he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace? But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Then Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy Jesus. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. You may be seated, and let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. Uh, the passage that we read is usually referred to as the triumphal entry. As I said, it marks the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life before his resurrection. And he and his disciples have joined thousands, tens of thousands maybe as many as two or 300,000 Jewish pilgrims who are coming from all over the place and coming into this town of Jerusalem, which would have only had 20,000 maybe living in it. So imagine your city swelling from 20 to 200,000. And Jesus is part of this great crowd. And in verse 29, you see that he stands on a hilltop of a little town called Bethphage. Bethphage is just, an, just about a mile outside of Jerusalem. It's on a little mountain top. And so it provides a great view. And Jesus is taking it all in. He can see the valley before him, which contains the Mount of Olives. And in the Mount of Olives is a small garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. And about a mile or two miles away, if you've ever been there, you can see it. The city's on the horizon. And he's, he's there, he's just visually taking in this entire scene. And what I'd like to do this morning is something a little bit different. I want to spend most of my time trying to paint a picture of something that only Jesus really sees. If you and I had been there as one of his disciples, we would have seen him, we would have seen the valley, we, we would have seen the city, we would have seen the crowds. There's lots of things that we would have seen but on the horizon is not just the city of Jerusalem for Jesus, but the perfect storm. Something that nobody else is anticipating. Something that I would suggest nobody else can see. Perhaps you're familiar with the story of the Andrea Gale. You know this story? Made popular by a book and also a movie, uh, The Perfect Storm. It's a true story. In October of 1991, a fishing boat called the Andrea Gale left Gloucester, Massachusetts to catch swordfish. 
and they motored out about 500 miles offshore in the North Atlantic, and they got caught in the perfect storm. The perfect storm was a convergence and a collision of three massive weather systems, one coming up from the south, a, a hurricane, one coming off the Massachusetts coast called a nor'easter, and then above it, a high-pressure system, this massive system which is causing these two other systems to collide and to converge and cause the perfect storm. This perfect storm created 100-foot waves. Hard to imagine, isn't it? Completely destroyed the Andrea Gale and all six members of its crew died. When Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, he was like the Andrea Gale. He's, been he's being carried into a perfect storm. And I would suggest the three storms converging on Jerusalem at this point are this, in the spiritual realm, the worldly realm, and the religious realm. It's like these three realms or these three massive systems collide and they really all come and collide on to Jesus. And we won't be able to unpack all of that today, but I just want to set that scene because that's the scene that's going to be playing out for the next few weeks. So let's look at these three realms that Jesus sees. The high pressure system that I would call the spiritual realm. This is the, the, the pressure that's creating or forcing all the action. If we were to give a name to this spiritual storm, the name would be Satan. But let's be clear, as Christians, we believe there is an unseen realm. And it's as active as the seen realm. These two realms are always interacting with each other, even right now. Let me give you an example. Ephesians 6. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. What is that saying? We're not wrestling with the seen realm. I mean, there's always things that are frustrating, but the real wrestling match, the real spiritual wrestling match isn't in this realm, but it's against rulers, authorities, and the cosmic powers of this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil. Let me read for you, a, I hope, a familiar passage, 2 Kings 6, and you can go back and look at it later. Elijah, the great prophet, is in Israel, and it's being overwhelmed by just a horde of, uh, of another army. And Elijah's servant comes in nervously one morning because he's seen the army on the horizon, and he says to Elijah, I mean, what are we supposed to do? We're, we're going to get overwhelmed in 2 Kings 6. Verse 15, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Elijah, master, what shall we do? And Elijah said, don't be afraid. For those who are with us, what is it, you remember? Are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, Behold, a mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around. 
So there's a spiritual realm all through the Bible. And we see that Satan, who's a created being, he's constantly the high pressure system, which has been at war with God and God's people since Genesis chapter 3. The Apostle Paul calls him the God of this age. And he says the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So people who don't believe in Christ, something's working on their soul, on their spirit. They can't see in some way. And, of course, the Gospels are full of reports of Satan's activities. Matthew 4.10, Jesus is in the desert. Remember this, 40 days. Satan says to Jesus, all these kingdoms, Jesus, all power can be yours. I just want one little thing, worship. Then Jesus said, "Get be gone, Satan. See, when he enters Jerusalem, it's not the first time he's feeling this high-pressure system. Mark 8, Peter rebukes Jesus for Jesus talking about Jesus' death. Remember this? And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, what? Peter? No, he, he hears Satan influencing Peter's life, Peter's words. Luke chapter 22, which we'll look at in a couple weeks. Then Satan entered into Judas. This is a terrifying verse in the Bible. Luke 22, same chapter, same time frame. Simon, Simon, or Peter. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. I just want you to feel that. When Jesus is entering to Jerusalem, there's a massive high-pressure system that is exerting influence at this particular time. And I regret we don't have time to unpack all this activity, but this is a massive storm, and it, and it still is affecting us today. I'll resist any reference to Satan showing up at the Grammys this past week. <clears throat> if you don't know what it is, don't Google. It's not worth your time. But this storm, this high-pressure system, consumes Judas. Completely overwhelms Peter. They don't see it going in. And it creates a swirl of questions for us. But let's make no mistake. It is a spiritual high-pressure system that's having an effect on everyone in this scene that we've read about. Second, second system. First is the the dominating high-pressure system that's causing the other systems to collide and combine. The second system is the nor'easter. This is the one in, in the story is peeling off the coast of Massachusetts. And this is, I'm going to call, the worldly realm. If you wanted to give it a name, it would be the Roman Empire. The worldly realm has no use for Jesus the, the worldly realm operates with power and control. That's what it's primarily after. Anything or anybody or any religion attempting to dis disrupt my autonomy, anything trying to disrupt my personal power and control gets eliminated. That's the worldly realm. Caesar and the Roman Empire served as the name for this nor'easter. And Jesus faces this as he comes into Jerusalem. Caesar, who was the, the Roman ruler at that time, he was known as 
the Son of God. Can you imagine that? You pick up a little coin, has his likeness on it, and right around it says, not in God we trust, but Caesar, Son of God. So everybody's familiar with who is the Son of God. It's Caesar. He has all power. He has all control, and he has no use for Jesus. In fact, in the Roman Empire, the biggest thing they were worried about was any uprising. Anybody who threatens our power and control, they get eliminated. I just don't want anybody or anything or any religion impending on what I want to do and what I want to say. And if anybody comes in and tries to do that, bingo, they're eliminated. That's worldly power. Very interestingly, historically, 200 years before Jesus' birth, there was another triumphal entry. I don't know if you know this. A Jewish man had lodged or initiated a three-year campaign around Israel. He wanted to overthrow the occupiers of Israel, and his sort of last thing to do was he had a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And as he came into Jerusalem, he cleansed the temple. And as he cleansed the temple, the people who were part of this revolt, they sang songs to each other and they waved palm branches. Isn't that interesting? Palm branches, if you're in Israel, is like waving, if you're an American, waving the American flag. It's like saying, hey, we're in control now. These foreign occupiers, they're not in control. We're in control. We've won. We've taken over. And the Jewish man, his name was called Judah the Hammer or Judah Maccabeus. So when Jesus enters Jerusalem and the people are singing and they're waving palm branches, hey, the Romans know what's going on. You know, we might have kids come up and down the aisle, wave the branches, sing, sing glory, hallelujah, but we don't really understand. This is a revolution. This is the people who are in power. They're getting out of power. We're, we're here to take over. And they sang these songs. It's called antiphonally. If you've ever been to a Carolina football game, tar heels, right? Tar heels. I don't know if you grew up going to VBS and you'd sing the song. I don't even know the name of the song. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. And then what is it? Praise ye the Lord. It's kind of, you can tell who are smart and who aren't smart when you do the song because you got to stand up. Remember, and then it changes. And I was always like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know which way. I mean, I don't think that qualifies me as a resume builder for my pastor. I couldn't figure out when to stand up during the song. But that's the idea. They're, they're going down, and these people are echoing this song as they go down this trail. They're waving palm branches. And they, Jesus enters Rome, and they find out somebody's trying to, to take their power and control. And the Roman storm strips and whips Jesus to say, hey, you're not in control. And when Pilate, the head, nails above the cross a little sign that says, remember, king of the Jews, he's sending a signal to every Jewish person. You mess with this king, this is what happens. See, this is worldly power. I'm just not, it's not, it's not, I'm not really just against Jesus. I'm against anything that comes into my autonomy. I'm against anything that comes in that takes over my power or my control. 
So people in the worldly realm, they, they have their gods. Power, control, might be money or sex or comfort or autonomy or identity. But whenever Jesus comes and threatens to be in control, he gets crucified. This is a power. This is a force that Jesus feels as he enter, enters into the city. The, the spiritual realm, the worldly realm. And finally, we have this third storm, the hurricane, the religious realm. And I'm going to say the hurricane is, is made up of two types of winds, the, the front-facing winds and then the winds that come from behind. These two religious groups are the religious rulers and the disciples. They're all colliding together at this one place. The religious rulers, we see them in this text, the Pharisees, the chiefs, the scribes. These are people who've memorized the Bible. You want a Bible verse? They got it for you. They don't need to turn to it. They are trying to live out the commands of the Bible. They're often called the separatists because they wanted to separate themselves from the world. They also wanted to separate themselves from other fake believers. Like, you're not really doing the God thing. We're, we're different than you, so we're separatists. They were the real deal. If, if anyone thought they got Jesus, this crowd thought they got Jesus. They had the stamp of approval. But what they didn't like was Jesus kept getting off script. And let me just show it to you in chapter 19, verse 5. We talked about this. Joseph did a good job talking about this last week. Remember the story of Zacchaeus? Jesus meets Zacchaeus. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up, remember in the tree, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay in your house today. Zacchaeus, this notorious tax collector. So he hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. And when they saw, the Pharisees saw it, what did they do? They celebrated. Now, oh, no. Uh-uh. Hey, you're getting off script, Jesus. I mean, if you're a prophet, you should know who this is. I mean, us, us people, we don't, we don't celebrate with these people. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And you see it here in Luke 19, verse 38, that they're singing together. And some of the Pharisees, verse 39, in the crowds said to them, hey, this is too much. Jesus, rebuke the people who are singing. I mean, they're calling you the king. I mean, the first song we sang here, Jesus is king. They're, they're singing the song. We can't have that here. That's, that's not part of the script. And then they come to, at the end of the, of the chapter, and, and beginning in verse 20, they come back to Jesus, and we'll talk about this next week, and they say, hey, who gave you authority? See, they don't, they don't want their, threat, their authority threatened either. They're religious, but they still don't want Jesus to have authority in their lives. Let me say that one more time. They are religious. They know their Bible. They think they get Jesus. But they don't actually want Jesus to have authority. See, this is a dangerous storm that some of us might be caught in today 
We think as long as Jesus stays in his lane, as long as he approves of the way I practice my faith, I'm fine. But the minute he calls me out on my behavior, uh, no. No, Jesus, I'd, I'd like to live my life this way. They think they get God, but they don't. That's the front side of this hurricane. The back side come the disciples. Small, dedicated band of faithful followers. They believe Jesus gets them, and they believe that they get Jesus. But they don't. And you can tell from different passages, just even here. They're singing, they're waving flags, the palm branches. They're ushering in the king. They're celebrating. Verse 41, what is Jesus doing? He's weeping. I mean, they're celebrating. This is it. And Jesus is crying, saying, you, di you didn't see the time of the visitation. You're, you're celebrating, but you're not somehow not looking at me and see that I'm crying, that this isn't a time to celebrate. This is like the tragic entry, not the triumphal entry. I'm coming, and you didn't see that I really was the kind of king that needed to come. In Luke chapter 22, again, we'll get to in a couple of weeks, they're at the Lord's Supper. And Jesus takes the cup and the bread, remember, passes it around. And it's at a table, so they don't move. But imagine the disciples coming up and Jesus giving them the bread and the wine. And as they go back to the seat, you know what they start talking about? Yes, Jesus, thank you. Got the bread, got the wine. Hey, who's going to be the greatest? They don't get him. I mean, I, if I'm Jesus, I'm like pulling my hair out. I'm trading in these 12 for any other 12. We've been here the whole time. And right after I give you my blood and my body, you're worried about where you are. Do you see, they have a, they have a position and a power. Or they want one. Luke chapter 24, two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. Jesus, in, in sort of incognito, comes up, starts talking to him, and they say, we had hoped he was the one. He, Jesus had so much potential. He just didn't live up to his potential. He had so much power, but he just didn't use the power the way we would have used power. And as disturbing as all that is, after he spent 40 days with him in his resurrected body in Acts chapter 1, they look at him and says, Lord, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Come on, guys. See, it's not, it's not about this right here. It's about me. It's about a, a power you need inside of your life because of the sin in your life. You're, you're completely missing it. The disciples love Jesus. I know that they did. But they just didn't seem to understand the way Jesus was going to work. He had all this power, but he just didn't use it in the right way, and they become disillusioned. They deny him. They walk away. This can, this can happen, does happen today. You come to Jesus. You really do love Jesus. You believe Jesus really loves you. But you've got a script in your head of how he's going to orchestrate your life. 
Do you not? I have this script. I have to tear it up every morning. And when he doesn't do the way I think he should do, he doesn't use the power to heal my mother. He doesn't use the power to change my current circumstances. I get disillusioned because I think I know he has this power, but he doesn't use it, so I walk away. He's not, a, he's not living according to my script. You see, this is another system that's converging on Jerusalem. Jesus feels it. Jesus knows it. It may have been a sunny day, the day Jesus entered Jerusalem, but, but he knew he was entering the perfect storm. Now, just let's close here. Picture this in your mind. Jesus sitting on a foal of a donkey. This is the king. Now, a donkey might be about three feet high. A foal, 30 inches high maybe. A foal has never been written, ridden. And Jesus, he doesn't have to like hop up. He doesn't need a lift up, right? Just <laughs> sitting there. It's like embarrassing, isn't it? Like, I mean, I'm looking for the war horse. I'm looking for the chariot. You're on this dang donkey. That's small. It's never even been ridden. But he's trying to help everybody understand, see, I'm different than what you think. You think I came to get power, I came to give away power. You think I came to kill, I came to be killed. No, nobody gets Jesus And my question for us today and as we move ahead in these texts, ask again, do you, do you get Jesus? Or, or you have a script that he's supposed to follow, and when he doesn't follow, you know, you're out. Some scholars say the only thing that gets Jesus in this story is what? The donkey. Here's a donkey that's never been written and throngs of crowds are shouting around it. What would a donkey that's never been written do at that point? Oh, it'd be bucking and bronking. Unless the creator is sitting on it. And the donkey understood, hey, this is my creator. I'm completely submitting to him, no matter the chaos. So I won't end on, can you be a donkey today? <laughs> but do you get Jesus? Let's pray. Can we just sit just for a few minutes, quietly, rainy, cold Sunday? To sing, to sing that you're king. To, to, to hear again a story that we've heard many times. To ask ourselves anew, do, do we really get you? Are we one of these other storms here? 
And I do pray that you would open our eyes to see, like you did for the servant, who you really are, who we really are, and how we need your kind of salvation. We don't need a better life. We need a different heart. Would you help us understand that and see it and submit to your power and authority? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.